Hello, welcome to another episode of A Grand Reflection. It is just before Christmas, and um, we're going through a third episode of the uh, death and acceptance theme. Uh, we started this, interestingly, I think. Uh, give me a second here, just getting some coffee. Um, let's see, we started this um, before Halloween, no, right after Halloween, I think. And kind of missed the boat on that, and then um, tried to integrate Thanksgiving, kind of missed the boat on that, and uh, barely squeaked by with both those episodes, and now here we are at Christmas kind of doing the same thing. And I think that that's okay. Uh, for one, that is a good callback to all of this stuff before on creativity and, and letting it be in its own time, and not trying to get too caught up on deadlines and, and all those sort of things. Um but I suppose there's also a balance, which is why I'm trying to put out the episode today, of uh, at the end of the day, rather than letting it um, be what it's going to be, sometimes we tend to make things too perfect, or try to make things too perfect, even though that's a moving target. So uh, that's the case with this one. And with this one, I think especially there's that dynamic where there's a lot of really good stuff here. And it's almost sort of uh, by putting it down, I'm missing a thousand uh, directions that I could go with it. So I just want to acknowledge that and I want to recognize that um, it's part of the creative process. So if you're in the middle of something, uh, yeah, I hope that would be encouraging that, th that this kind of stuff is hard for me too. Um, and it's not always uh, honed in and, and, and figured out and all that sort of stuff. So with that said, though, uh, this does seem like a good one to do that because uh, here we are just two days after the solstice. We are still in the dark times. Um, that's a really good continuation of Halloween for sure. In, in fact, it's kind of weird that Halloween is so uh, soon in the fall we we have this idea of this thin space um which is maybe more at like the fall equinox rather than uh the truest dark of the dark times perhaps there's sort of a, a notion of an opening up of this other realm and so i think that that is something that i want to get to that i didn't really get too far into yet i mentioned a couple times in sort of offhand ways but the winter time especially is a time when everything's going dormant, everything's underground, that tends to, within our human consciousness, uh, lend us one towards sort of an introspection and a slower uh, pace. But also, too, it's a time of telling stories. It's a time, um, traditionally, I can think of um, the Icelandic sagas have this phrase in them uh, called a coal biter. Um, you might, you know, there might be like, uh, he was a coal biter in his youth and then he, uh, learned how to take action. But, um, so, so yeah, sometimes it's used as a, uh, a phrase to mean someone who doesn't take action, but at its core, what it is, a coal biter is someone who is sitting so close to the flames uh, of the hearth that they could bite the coals. It's kind of a tongue in cheek reference, but, um, the hearth was a time of stories, a time of imagination, a time of conjuring up images uh, that would not normally be conjured. 
sometimes a spooky time. We, we still have a carryover for this with uh, campfire stories. Our desire to um, sit close to the flames and kind of ward off the dark spirits. And um, this is something that, that uh, kind of continues into modern day in some way with uh, people who like to tell stories. In fact, uh, if you're familiar with The Inklings which is uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and um, C.S. Lewis and a few of their friends who were kind of workshopping stories all together. They um, originally had a group, before they started doing their own stories, they had a group called the Coal Biters that they named because they wanted to be involved in stories, especially Nordic stories, um, stories that would be told in the dark around a uh, warm fire. So I think that there's something to be said for um, the timing of that. Uh, somebody who doesn't take action. Um, that just, yeah, that just kind of makes sense uh, that this one particularly is hard to get up off the ground. It is that season. So um, going on those realms uh, and kind of getting into Christmas here, because I haven't really talked about it too much, is... Uh, the Yule tradition, especially. Uh, so it's a Nordic tradition that a lot of our Christmas holiday stuff comes from. A lot of the things that we do uh, as sort of a modern practice for the season um, started out in this time that actually looked a lot more like Halloween in some ways. It was a time where the spirits were active. Uh, in the darkest time of the year was a time that you would be very wary because on one hand, there is better contact with ancestors, better contact with the gods. But also on the other hand, because of that better contact, you were more prone to dark influences, to, uh, you know, evil spirits, for lack of a better word. And the thing is, is these spirits were not, so much, you know, this one's evil, this one's not. It's They have their own agenda and they're powerful. So there's some that you kind of want to avoid more generally and some that you kind of want to petition more generally. But it's not so black and white. If, if you look at the, um, uh, the mythology for Nordic countries, it, it is that way with their gods as well. In general, someone like Thor would be someone that you would want to petition to. He is one who brings the rains, uh, who is sort of the fertility god, the horned god that we were talking about earlier, who um, will fight for you, will protect you. But on the other hand, he's also the master of thunder and the, the one that causes the flames. Um, Actually, in a really interesting way, there's there's some parallels there with the idea of the abundance of the land being tied to the destruction as well. But um, all that to say is is there's these powerful forces and they're not good or bad. Uh, you just kind of have to learn to be in sync with them, to be in harmony with them. It, it's the same way with uh, Loki, who we generally think of as a uh, sort of bad character in a lot of ways. I mean, he causes Ragnarok. He causes literally the end of the world through his offspring, but at the same time, he also is the reason that Thor has his hammer. Um, there's a story where 
he um, basically tricks a bunch of, bunch of dwarves into making really fancy artifacts for all the gods. And um, actually, that's also why Thor's hammer is so short, because he messes with the dwarves when they're building it, uh, the, the hammer, and they uh, mess up the handle because they're too distracted. So uh, th there's kind of this ambiguity, and that's true with everyone, uh, even the Allfather, even Odin. And that's where that really comes in with the Yule tradition is part of it is there's the Yuletide. So we say, you know, make the Yuletide gay, you know, like all that, like like uh, make it a happy time, which is interesting because originally it wasn't really a happy time. It was a very sober time. It was uh, so the Yuletide, what it is, is Odin riding on Schleppnir, his uh, eight legged horse through the skies uh, towards glory and battle and uh, and the hunt. Um, there's a, uh, sort of, uh, almost a tone of like a berserker rage behind it, sort of, but, um, something that's glorious as well, but, but something that you don't want to get in the way of you, you don't want to get in the way of, uh, Odin's, uh, great hunt. So, um, he, uh, he rides through the sky at night and, uh, you stay inside, you stay by the hearth, you stay by the Yule log, which is a log representing the world tree, which is the um, the source of all life, the source of everything, uh, the Axis Mundi. And you sort of, um, yeah, you burn this log, which in, in some ways is ambiguous as well, right? It's this, uh, in one sense, it's something providing warmth, but it's also like something that is being destroyed uh, yet at the same time, it's something that is opposite of most of the things within the cycles and seasons. Most of the things are dying out and things are going dormant. But here's this log that is coming to life in the dead of winter um, and providing uh, safety and warmth and camaraderie. Uh, because this is also a time where even though you're staying inside and you're staying warm and you're avoiding all the spirits that are out there, um, at least for the most part, you are also um, having a celebration, and uh, so so the Yule the Yule log is a um, something that traditionally is a big enough log that it will never burn all the way. You you down one of the biggest trees, and you uh, you burn it, but you also save part of it for the next year. You carry it through. So there's kind of this thing like the fire is never ending. Um, it just lies dormant and then it comes to life again. And the same sort of thing happens with the gods is there's this sort of thin space at the darkest time of the year uh, where you can petition them. And so there's this other thing that happens with Christmas, which is a, uh, a petitioning of the gods where you make solemn oaths to them and you make a sacrifice, which is traditionally a wild boar. And... That's where we actually get two of our Christmas traditions as well, which is, uh, for one, the, um, the solemn oaths uh, become New Year's resolutions. And that wild boar, because you don't waste the meat, right? So, so you sacrifice the boar, but you, you eat it as well. So there's a celebration after the sober announcement of what you're going to do for the next year. And there's the spiritual element to it. And the feast of the holiday ham is... Uh, traditionally more of a, a sense of one a sense of gratitude that the gods have carried you through that they're on your side and two sort of a a like recognizing that um 
death is part of the cycle. Uh, so I guess, I guess that's where we get kind of again back circling through to Halloween and the, the, this line between Halloween and Thanksgiving and Christmas is very, very blurred. Um, <clears throat> so let me see what else I can pick up here. That So so there's those lines with a little bit of Christmas, at least from one perspective. Uh, there's also another perspective with Christmas that I want to, I think, circle back to. Um that has to do with uh, Lapland traditions, uh, but we'll get that that in a minute. Um, circling back to Thanksgiving, though, I do want to. I didn't get a chance to talk about modern Thanksgiving. So, with Thanksgiving, we got into a little bit of the history of that. How. It was sort of this tenuous treaty that was more political than anything, and then those ties quickly died off, and the um, the tribes were uh, basically exterminated, uh, both through, uh, well, actually, I didn't really get into this, but through chemical warfare uh, in the sense of smallpox blankets, which um, we're a little bit more familiar with. But the extent of that is um, trying to get out this, uh, ironically, through contamination, <laughs> trying to get out the contamination of the savages for this promised land that is supposedly supposed to be for uh, these Puritan people. Um, and then, you know, later you get kind of the witch trials and you kind of this turning in on itself and all that. But way, way later, um, and, and, and actually here's where you get some weird ties with stuff, is... Around that period, uh, from the 1600s onward, uh, in fact, in 1620, around the exact same time that Plymouth, that uh, the Pilgrims first landed on Plymouth, we also had the first slaves come to America. That's why you have the 1619 project. Um, that that's a more recent uh, thing that the uh, I believe it's the New York Times is doing to kind of uh, recontextualize history, but. Um, so, so, so during the next hundred years, we essentially established the slave trade in America and uh, settle into a new norm there. So it's really interesting that the timing of these things, um, how it happens, but it comes full circle uh, after a few hundred years. You fast forward to the Civil War and we are recontextualizing, redealing with this idea of owning slaves. And one of the things that Abraham Lincoln does to try to um, ease the population and try to think of us as united is he takes these old traditions and these old events in history and he tries to uh, bring them back to the surface and sort of create this myth of a united nation um, that, uh, you know, because up until this point, it's a lot of uh, confederacies and uh, commonwealths and, and, and things like that. And, and we are a nation in one sense. You know, we have been since 1776, but there was a lot more independence. There wasn't this, this sense of unity. It was almost more like a, a EU sort of thing rather than a one nation, a bunch of little nations confederated together, you know, the United States. And... Um, 
part of the problems with that is, you know, when half the states want want things to be done one way and the other half want it to be done the other way, how do you avoid a split? And so Abraham Lincoln, one of the things he did was take all these little holidays and things that um, and, and sort of build up uh, this idea of an American tradition, this idea of being an American. And one of the things that he did with that was to boost up Thanksgiving. He made it a national holiday. And up until this point, honestly, it wasn't really uh, much of a thing. Uh, it was just kind of this random uh, instance, this this random piece of history. You know, people knew about it, but it wasn't something that you went out and celebrated, not really. And and so from then, then on, over the next... Um, couple hundred years again, you get kind of this boosting up of this tradition. And and so it's really interesting to think of Thanksgiving as one of our most traditional American holidays, really not even being there for half of our nation's history. But, but because of the power of that narrative, there is um, especially an emphasis put on uh, the Plymouth Plantation, which is the l- original location of uh, the Plymouth Rock, Rock Feast, or at least um, close enough that, that, that that's what they counted as. And so, uh, there's been this feast that has been going on for, um, God, I don't know how long, probably at least a hundred years. I, I'm not sure when they started doing it, but the whole idea is, um, is basically in Massachusetts, they, you know, they have this big, giant Thanksgiving meal, and everybody dresses up as traditional as they can, as much like the pilgrims as they can, and they make the dishes as traditional as they can, and they try to recreate it. Um, it has a lot of through lines, kind of actually, come to think of it, of those Civil War re- reenactments that people do in the South, of, like, really stepping into the character, really taking it seriously, and um, really uh, feeling like you're a part of the history um a part of this vast tradition that has been going on for, um, at least in the minds of the people doing this for th- 300 years. And so for the 300, no, for the, t- hold on, I'd have to, I have to think about this for the, um, let me see if I have it written down here. Let's see. 350th. That's what it is. Okay, so for the 350th anniversary of the Mayflower landing, they decided to make a big deal out of it. They, one, recreated the Mayflower, and they took, uh, basically, they they created a bunch of um, stuffed characters to throw on the Mayflower to make it look occupied. And the other thing that they did was they wanted to make a big deal out of the meal. Um, So... Keeping in mind, this is the uh, 349th anniversary of the Thanksgiving meal because it, it would have taken a year after the Mayflower landed. But So they have this Mayflower 2 that they have docked, uh, that, they are, um, that they have sort of revamped and made all shiny and nice, and they're ready for this meal. And uh, they invite this guy, uh, Frank Wemsetta James. Now... His middle name is Wemsetta, which is, I think, very telling. Uh, that That's his sort of, not middle name, but nickname. His uh, his nickname is Wemsetta, which is the same name as the chief who originally uh, made the treaty with the pilgrims. So he's naming himself after this guy of Bridging Gaps and having a feast. 
And I'm not sure, I can't find the information, if he had that name before this or after this incident. So uh, either way, I think it's, it's really amazing that that's what he's come to be known by. Because what he does is he gets invited to this feast and he is a leader, um, a descendant of the uh, Native Americans that were uh, there at the original feast. And that's why they invite him, because they want it to be as genuine uh, to the experiences they can, or at least so they think, because what he does is um, they say, hey, uh, we just want to know like uh, what you're going to say, if you could just hand us a, a manuscript of your of your speech that you plan on. And he does that. And then they say, hey, uh, this is a little inflammatory. This is a time of connecting. We, we're not really, we don't like what you're saying, because basically what he is saying, and you can find this um, uh, transcript online, basically what he's saying is, this is a time for my people of sadness and mourning because of the losses. And we had no way to know of reaching out our hand, like how much losses we would incur. And so today, today is a sober day, and I'm glad to be here to, uh, to bridge that gap so that we can talk about what happened and we can learn to move past it together. It's kind of basically his tone. It's like, hey, let's yeah, let's let's air this all out. Let's let's re let's restore this. Let's um, bring a cycle back forth and let's get rid of this uh, distance that we have between our peoples. And the way that it is interpreted is a lot more like, uh, hey, don't cause a stir, man. Like we're we're just trying to have a nice Thanksgiving meal. You know, the time where we all give thanks and we're grateful for what we have, not for what we don't have. Come on, man. That's not cool. And he goes like, well, I'm not going to change it. And they say, okay, well, then you're, you're uninvited to this, <laughs> to this meal. Uh, we don't want you there in that case. And uh, so what he does is he, um, because they, they let him know this ahead of time. It's months ahead of time. And they let him know that, that he's not allowed to, to be there or, or that he's not welcome there, rather. Uh, and so he gets a bunch of people together. Word gets out and a bunch of tribes from all over the country. Um, basically, like people, uh, Native American people head over there to Plymouth Rock for the Thanksgiving meal. Not not to take part in the meal. They don't want to take part in the meal. They're not trying to like bomb the meal. What they're doing instead is they're having a day of mourning and a day of protest. So the first one happens in, um, I believe, 1972. Uh, I could be wrong. Maybe it's 1970. I'll have to go look at the dates. But, um, and he leads this day of mourning. He starts this whole movement. And they've been doing it ever since. They've been doing it for 50 years. And it's amazing to me. I, it blew my mind that, that this is not something that we talk about. I could not believe it. Like I was like, 50 years they've been doing this? And, like, they've been protesting the original meal for 50 years. And nobody ever talks about this. Uh, wow, what the heck? And so... I'm having it in my mind. I'm going like, is this really a big deal? Like, is this actually something this big? And I, I like, I, I'm like, I need another perspective. And as luck would have it, there's a good family friend. Um, her name is Wichelle. And uh, we've known her for years. And she is, um, she is part, what is she part? She is part uh, Ojibwe. And... In fact, so I go, I go and I call her, and I have this wonderful meandering conversation, and, and um, 
some of it we talk about like I tell her where this podcast is going where what I'm trying to do with it um and she gets uh, really excited and supported supportive of me and and she um says that's kind of an amazing thing I never would have made those connections um I really like that uh aspect of talking about the feminine there that's great uh which was really great coming from her because um she uh her family consists of her and her daughter and her daughter um when we were growing up was her son and it's this really amazing um affirming wonderful thing like she's such a, a beautiful human being to give her daughter such acceptance uh that she felt free to make that transition and um so uh Gia uh, her daughter has is just this amazing person who feel like like I just get such a sense of freedom seeing who they are and um their their femininity and their womanhood and uh they <laughs> I mean they're like their absolute idol is Britney Spears and um it has been fun lately, like lately, to see how much I, I don't know if you guys have paid attention to that or not. But there's this whole thing with Britney Spears, where apparently for lots and lots of years she was kind of under this contract, and it, in a weird way, it let her her dad take control of like assets in her life. But it was like a huge, huge contract that like she's a grown adult, <laughs> and she didn't like have control over her life. There's this whole big litigation thing, and she finally got out of it, and it was like really big. But anyway. It was really cool to see uh, Gia so like adamant for that freedom, and I know that uh, Gia feels that because of uh, Wichelle. So Wichelle is somebody whose opinion I really appreciate a lot, and and in a lot of overlaps from um, these ideas of gender issues, but also these ideas of um, indigenous rights and sticking to your roots and and getting involved with cycles and seasons and spiritualities and. Um, seeing things from an intuitive perspective and being connected to the land and all this sort of stuff. So I was like, I, I need to know her perspective on this and I need to hear what she thinks. And she goes, oh yeah, of course. Yeah. In fact, my uncle went there is what she tells me. And I'm like, what, wait, your uncle went there? And she goes, oh yeah, let me uh, pull out this book on his biography and uh, let me read you a passage. And she reads me this passage um, that talks about him actually being there at the original day of mourning and uh it's so interesting i mean i i see it, it as another one of those uh really interesting um parallels with like either incorporation or uh rejection as too extreme and and like 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 these ideas of purity coming through again because you have on one hand frank wemsetta james and they don't make a big thing out of him doing this in weird ways they minimize him because they go like oh that's just how they'll be we tried to offer him to be in our meal but he didn't want to you know and uh you know we we respect his right for to to have this freedom of speech and have this time where he's uh doing a protest good on him uh but they don't really take it to heart um so there's like one side of it you have this kind of peaceful protest honestly i see a little bit of parallels between um, when said of James and uh, maybe like MLK, somebody like that, like this uh, non-violent resistance kind of thread. Um, and then you have Wichelle's uncle. And Wichelle's uncle, he actually uh, was super involved his whole life in all of these indigenous rights issues and was one of the uh, 
bigger players in a lot of different things that went on, such as uh, the occupation of, um, oh gosh, outside of San Francisco, you know, the, the prison. Uh, oh, shoot. You know, uh, what, what is it called? <laughs> Sorry, give me one second. I got my computer here. Uh, Um, you know, uh, oh, duh, Alcatraz, my goodness. Okay. So Alcatraz, um, just as a side note, he, uh, he was involved for about, I think it was like two or three years. Uh, there's this interesting clause with, uh, California bylaws that says if a land is unoccupied for a certain amount of time, then, um, any native population can uh, reclaim that land as their own which is weird in one sense because it's still doing a framework of like property and ownership and capitalism when really um i think what a lot of these tribes would like is a reconnection to the land um a, a way to be able to roam free and to enter into a symbiosis with it which isn't really the case if you have fenced borders so that's like a whole other issue but but the thing is is they decide to kind of get some trickster energy going which is um some of these very uh very familiar to native american myth if you're familiar with uh coyote things like that a lot of uh, indigenous populations have this uh trickster god that is um seen as sort of ambiguous but but sort of an energy that you can tap into when you need to and so they tap into that and they go you know what you know what hasn't been occupied in forever is Alcatraz, that prison. We can we can reclaim that island, and we can make it like this oasis. Um, really cool thing that really hits on that like life and death cycles stuff. Like this is a place that was like people were in the deep dark depths of their suffering and their longing and their alienation. And then uh, to take such a place like that and decide that um, that it should be a place of thriving is is so cool and really fits with those ideas of like coming out of the dark time. Like that feels very parallel to a solstice event, which is you're at the darkest day of the year and you participate in the um, through ri ritual. You are bringing forth, you're calling back the sun to come back uh to to the earth to provide light and provide life and and provide flourishing and and so that that feels like one of those events as well um anyway they don't keep it that long because you know nobody's going to stand by that it's like a national monument um so unfortunately like eventually they kind of get them to leave but uh uh dennis uh Wichelle's uncle he does a few other things too like um climb to the top of Mount Rushmore and take a giant piss on it. Um, just th these crazy things like that. So anyway, so there's this guy who's like kind of wild and um, amazingly so. I would say almost, and again, I'm using I'm using parallels. That they're obviously not going to be exact, but almost more like a, uh, like a Malcolm X sort of uh, energy. Like a, like a, no, I'm done being nice. I'm going to, I'm not going to take your shit. And we're just going to be like very direct about this. Uh, and he takes that energy to this first, um, 
the this first day of mourning and while there are some tones um with Wimsada James doing these uh these kind of almost a vigil kind of service like a like definitely a lot of speeches and a lot of directness but you know like like a march is involved and things like that um meanwhile uh Dennis goes on to the Mayflower reproduction and uh with a few of his friends and um basically commandeers the ship like straight pirate status like on the ship um taking down the flag the american flag and then flipping it upside down and f uh putting it back back up it only lasts a few minutes but they um they managed to throw these effigies because they already there was already effigies on the the boat because <laughs> they, they wanted it to look full like it was full of pilgrims so they throw all these like stuffed pilgrims uh into the water and basically just give some shouts of like um you know this isn't okay this isn't cool and uh you know and then they calm down because police get involved and they say hey we're done we're done we're not doing anything else it's like you know it's cool it's cool but uh that you know they make their point and so I, I couldn't believe this i'm hearing this story <laughs> like i was asking you if this is like a valid thing and you're like yeah not only is it like a big thing like my uncle was involved in it like at the start uh so that's just so cool and um such a cool connection and through line with all this this stuff um another thing too is uh Michelle is a uh, journalist and she shared with me this article that she wrote a while back um because she's over from um from Reno which is where I'm from uh she uh wrote this article for Carson City uh, maybe I don't know a couple decades back something like that and it was talking about um indigenous traditions for thanksgiving things that were integrated right um uh, so it's that other side of of the realm and this seems to be kind of the overall tone um maybe it's just mostly timing uh, uh different dynamics with like the wild west versus uh on the east coast with like the puritanism and stuff like that but it seems to be more uh, on the east coast is more the extermination in terms of purity and and the other on the west coast is more transformation in terms of purity and so like uh i i talked to my great aunt Teresa, who uh lives up in uh, washington and spent a lot of years with um uh, it's kind of fuzzy i should ask her more like exactly what what she did but I, as far as i can tell it was a lot of administrative role um, writing, writing up, uh, charters and bills and things like that for, uh, the Native Americans of the area. Um, I forget which tribe I should probably ask her. Um, but anyway, she's made a lot of friends with them and uh, over the years. And, uh, you know, I asked for her perspective on this and she said, there's a lot of, uh, interesting, like joy mixed with sadness when it comes to the Thanksgiving tradition, because, um, on one hand, it, it is a time of, of harvest and of traditions and being with family and slowing down and giving thanks. Um, and there's all these really cool things that they integrate. Like, you know, they'll have a, a turkey for Thanksgiving and they'll have like uh, the standard things like stuffing and all that. But they'll also uh, get these indigenous dishes and, and um, bring those quite literally to the table as well. And, and it's kind of this fun merging. 
But with that, there's also um, some sadness of what's lost because there are some of these things that they have retained, but a lot of it has just been lost with time because especially um, especially that far north, the Canadian response to the indigenous population was assimilation, was to try to um, take out the infection from within, right? To uh, get the savage out of the Indian is, is kind of the, the thought. And so there's all this culture that was lost. Like they survived as a people, um, but just feel very much just American. There's not even, most of them aren't even on a tribe uh, or, or on, on tribal land. Um, they just live their life day to day as normal Americans, which is not, bad and horrible but but there is a sense of loss so thanksgiving has an a, an extra tinge there of what sort of at this point never was for them um or was but in a very reduced way because that's all that was available so it's interesting to see these two different perspectives and, and going back to Michelle, she writes this article talking about um indigenous traditions within thanksgiving and it's this really well thought out article and shows a lot of generationality a lot of femininity um, a lot of passing on these traditions. And um, she doesn't get a say in what the cover looks like. And they just put this giant cornucopia on the front. And uh, if you remember earlier, the cornucopia is actually uh, something from Europe. It, it has nothing to do with uh, Thanksgiving except as a carryover of a harvest festival through like the horned gods and the green men and all those sort of things um, that weren't even from this place. So... It's, it's really interesting to see the ways that these get assimilated. And um, going back to Dennis, he has this thing. Um, it's kind of a little unclear if this was the same year or the next year. Uh, I'll have to look into that. But either way, um, after the events of the, the um, taking over of the ship, he goes in and he, he goes to where they're preparing the Thanksgiving meal. The tables are laid out. Nobody's there yet, except some of the main, uh, the main people setting it up. And he finds the main guy, and um, the main guy kind of like invites him. I'm like, "Oh, hey, you're here. Would you like to take part? Look, this is perfect. Come take part." And he goes like, "No, I don't want to take part in your, in your stupid meal. Uh, this is dumb." And then the guy like basically responds with like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! I was offering." A table what are you doing you know and uh he basically uh starts flipping tables because he's mad at the guy and uh so he messes up all of this whole table of just thanksgiving meals just like literally like we're talking like jesus in the temple flipping tables uh kind of kind of status like no this is not you've you've messed it up you're missing the point and uh yeah so that's kind of another side, too. I just wanted to bring those to the surface. Of There's multiple reactions within this Thanksgiving tradition. It's not like a, um, a monolith, even among uh, the indigenous population. Uh, it really depends on which tribe. It depends on which person. It depends on uh, all sorts of factors. Uh, but a through line that we still have today is sort of this don't cause trouble don't um, don't step outside the norm, which I do think is a huge carryover to the mindsets that we get into because of things uh, stemming from capitalism, right? If if you have individuals or diverse populations with 
uh, different motivations, different understandings of events, um, that becomes very hard to assimilate. Uh, and if you can't assimilate it, then you cannot um, profit from it. So I think there's that. There's probably a lot more I could get into with uh, indigenous rights, especially recently. Uh, Hawaii is another one of those things. Uh, everybody wants to retreat to Hawaii in the wintertime, which I think is really interesting because that's a population that is very connected to land and cycles and seasons. Um, and uh, we try to disrupt it by going to them. So that that's something. Uh, there's probably a lot up there too with um, like uh, uh, far north tribes like in Alaska because that's a whole other thing. Um, I, I guess I could just take a quick moment to to show like America definitely continued its colonial expansion after becoming independent. And we just did some better branding. Uh, realistically, we did conquer and take over Alaska and Hawaii. We just decided to call them states because people didn't like that uh, post-World War II. Um, it looked too much like Nazi Germany. It looked, looked too much like somebody trying to conquer the world. So um, we mask it in the name of freedom. And really what it means is uh, in the name of it's, it's assimilation. Uh, these notions of freedom, individual freedom, I think, um, are kind of founding myths for America, but really, if we look at the history of it, uh, with the Puritanism and the attacking of diverse populations, both indigenous and um, uh, the, f the feminine, there is a huge uh, disparity between what is being said and what's being practiced, um, especially, too, uh, with Puritan values. I mean, the stated thing was like a freedom to practice, but realistically, everywhere is either demand of conversion or, um, well, I guess there's three. There's conversion or uh, being exiled or uh, being destroyed. And interestingly, mostly people who are exiled, uh, and this is a huge, huge history, uh, people exiled were not... Um, were not too keen on coming back if they were given an opportunity. Uh, sometimes they would be taken kind of like as uh, hostages or whatever, and then they would say like, yeah, now, now that you've negotiated for me to come back, I'm, I'm not going to come back. This is better. Um, there's this book that I've been reading lately called uh, The Dawn of Everything, and it talks mostly about the uh, indigenous critique, which was very strong when um, America was first being founded, that talked a lot about like that there were <clears throat> indigenous philosophers and indigenous teachers and indigenous writers that were talking out this um, this change going on and giving critique to the European way of doing things. And essentially, we we kind of phased that out into uh, two caricatures. Of the indigenous people, which is either the noble savage or just the, the savage, which would be either somebody who's going to uh, to be uh, backwards on their morals and aggressive and uh, animal-like that will kill you, or um, somebody, uh, or or beings 
a people who are idyllic and maybe um, peaceful and uh, sort of this like this notion of like a Garden of Eden, but also like innocent and um, and dumb, quite frankly. And so, unfortunately, there's these two visions that seem opposing, but really, at the end of the day, create this idea that somehow there wasn't conversation going on. Somehow there wasn't an intellectualism among Native Americans that they were like in a less evolved state of being as if somehow uh, we were further along than them. And when you have that notion, it becomes very easy to try to conquer. Because we did the same thing with um, the black population. We take these slaves from Africa and we justify enslaving them because we go like, oh, well, but their lives are better. Like, um, they may be slaves, but at least they have a regular set of food. At least we are giving them an opportunity to see some culture. Um, and we do the same with the Native American population. So that's where it gets in with like this, this idea of conquering. Like, you don't think twice about it if you go like, we're bringing the good... Uh, the good news of civilization. We're being, bringing Christianity to them so they'll get morals. We're bringing philosophy to them uh, so that they'll understand why they do what they do. Uh, we're bringing order and uh, capitalism and free market and all this stuff. And uh, that's obviously so much better that they will enjoy that. And really, what happens though is because we have these ideas of like what's good and what's bad rather and, and not accepting difference because we don't accept that difference we stifle any of those voices and we we turn them into one thing or another and so i think i really i want to get into that really deeply in just a second and and i'm sorry that i keep doing this where i like put a pause but there's there's all these puzzle pieces and they're going to kind of fit together at the end um, and that's one of them. So I want to move on again and we'll we'll circle to a new subject. Okay. So we talked about drugs in the last episode. And I think I want to circle back to that, especially in the context of Christmas. And I know that doesn't seem like something that's related, um, but it is. Uh, first off, thinking of those older traditions, those Yule traditions, those solstice traditions. Uh, this is already a time of the year that is a thin space, a time of the year that has to do with opening up yourself to the unseen, the spiritual, uh, both in the sense of ancestors and in the sense of uh, gods and demigods. And to be honest, those things are not that different. Um, within human consciousness for most of history, the idea of those that came before you and the idea of those spirits that are active in the world are very blurred. Um, there's ancestor worship, and then there's this idea of gods being in the world or being descended from gods, all this sort of stuff. And where those kind of converge is on the idea of elves. And we do have a lot of really weird ideas of elves. I think a lot, mostly from Tolkien, to be honest. Uh, there's these notion of fantasy elves, which are like, um, you know, very fair skin, um, kind of 
the the pointy ears and very elegant robes and live in these kind of golden light towers and stuff and some of that stuff uh is held in tradition but tolkien sort of made his own image of elves and um it's interesting uh Honestly, a lot of it still makes sense. Kind of this half immortal that that, that uh, their ways are different than ours. They're very connected to nature. Uh, they can be unseen, um, hidden realms, and all that sort of stuff. But traditionally, the idea of elves uh, within mythology they're actually more like dwarves, uh, diminutive in stature. They are um, a little mischievous. They are creators they're crafters and um they have their own societies that are kind of in the underworld so not exactly underground but sort of um because sometimes underground is is how we visualize the underworld but the underworld is really the the world behind the world the the hidden world um the the world of the soul of the um <clears throat> Yeah, the unseen and the unknown. In fact, a lot of traditions with elves is where the life comes from it is in opposite cycles of ours. When they are in a time of scarcity, we're in a time of abundance. When we're in a time of uh, scarcity, they are in a time of abundance. And so when you're petitioning those spirits, those elf spirits, uh, because that's kind of what they are, there is a um, a notion that they, that they have a lot to offer when you are in need but they might call upon you just in the same way that you're calling upon them and so it's kind of this duality it's this stepping into the cycle rather than um grabbing for the abundance it's entering into a relationship and those relationships they are they're tenuous at best half of the stories are about uh this great bounty that is received and half of them are about tremendous ruin and so it can kind of happen on either side. You really only mess with them when you're desperate in some ways. But uh, if you're in balance with them, if you are uh, within those cycles and those seasons, um, it can be a really good thing. In fact, most indigenous populations have some notion of these unseen people. Uh, a lot of things in common. You can't always see them unless they want to be seen. They're small in size. Their ways are not like ours. Their time is not like ours. And they have access to powers that we don't. And usually, almost always, they live in forests or they live in a place of green, um, fairy mounds, you know, that kind of stuff. So fairies are also, like, the fairies and elves, even though in our fantasy mindset, like our like sci-fi fantasy mindset, we, we separate those, those are really all kind of blended in the, in the same. And again, it's, it's not so different from the ancestor worship, not so different from the god worship, it's kind of this interesting blending. And so when you look at Christmas time and you look at Santa, um, one, he has all these magics, right? There's magic things. He has access to powers that we don't understand. And, um, a lot of them have to do with time. A lot of them have to do with manifesting, um, an abundance in the scarce times. Uh, and his helpers are elves. It, it, it's this really, um, this really interesting carryover. But another interesting part about Santa Claus is that uh, if we go back to that idea of the Yuletide Great Hunt, that flying across the sky with all these hooves uh, in a chariot, uh, wow, that looks a lot like Santa's sleigh. And um, 
so so you get this really weird mixing of traditions because obviously there's also Saint Nick, who's a Christian um a saint who was sort of half deified for the holiday. Um yeah, some of it comes from one spot, some of it comes from another. You can also look at Saturnalia when you go to Christmas, which was a um a festival in uh Rome for Saturn. And it was kind of an upside-down festival, so it would take place at this time of year, but the uh, poor would become rich, the rich would become poor. It was kind of this rebalancing thing, a lot like the trick-or-treat of Halloween. Um, and centered around that was a huge festival of celebration, a huge uh, set of drinking and enjoying uh, games and fun and all this sort of stuff. So there is a sense of um, intoxication and inebriation there uh, that is sort of a through line for the holiday. We still do that a lot, right? Like we look at it as an excuse to like drink the spiced eggnog and the cider and uh, get a little bit more toasty warm in a different way too, right? But um, it wasn't always just alcohol. Uh, the... Uh, traditions in Lapland, they were not so much into that, but um, they had a sort of shamanistic belief system. And the shamans, the way they would access the spirit world, the other world, the fairy world, whatever you want to call it, the world of the other beings or the ancestors is through the Amanita muscaria mushroom. Now, the Amanita muscaria is a mushroom that is found underneath uh, evergreen trees. So uh, I don't know if you've ever seen an Anamanita muscaria, but that is the standard mushroom that we use for like cartoons. It's the red mushroom with the little white dots. Uh, it's the mushroom like what that Mario eats to grow, uh, which <laughs> could be another rabbit trail I won't get into for like video games and these sort of things. But um, essentially, what it is is it's a psychedelic mushroom. Uh, you end up in an altered state of consciousness, but the shamans would use that to access the spirit world to give guidance to people. Um, but often this would be in the dead of winter and it's a Nordic uh, country. So there are um, there are huts, these, these sort of rounded huts. And if the snow's high, you would go in through the top, go in through the chimney. And um, keeping in mind these little mushrooms, um, they are gifts. Uh, it is freely given by the shaman. The shaman is given, um, in return, stuff like uh, uh, treats, um, something to eat, something to drink, you know, uh, maybe milk and cookies kind of thing. And uh, in return, he gives presents. Uh, so, like, if you think of the presents under the tree, uh, that looks a lot like the Amanita muscaria mushrooms popping up out of the ground and being these bright colors. But not only that, these shamans would um, start to dress like the mushroom, as sort of an advertisement and also as sort of embodying the spirit or essence of the substance. So um, this red and white would show up in the clothes and it's, you know, it's these deep winter clothes. So you have this big cap, you have um, someone who is eat, like being basically paid with decadent foods, who has this big round belly and uh, who's entering in through chimneys, and all of a sudden you go, wow, that looks a lot like Santa Claus. So you have another tradition that is informing our Santa Claus thing, and it's very psychedelic, uh, which is weird and um, <laughs> strange to find out. In fact, there's some evidence, too, that that's where the stockings come from because you're drying the mushrooms. 
Um, that tends to make them a little more safe. Another thing, too, with that is that reindeer absolutely love the Amanita muscaria. In fact, to the extent that if there is someone who has imbibed muscaria mushroom and they pee it out, the, the, the reindeer will, like, nudge you out of the way to eat the yellow snow. Like, that's how much they like it. And so then you have it, you know, so then there's that it's with the um, the reindeer uh, towing the sleigh. And, um, you know, it's not much of a stretch either with like the Amanita muscaria. One of the common side effects is this feeling of flying. And so like that's in the mix too. And so when you really start to look at all these traditions, it gets really weird. Like if we take a second to go back to Halloween as well, um, it is another one of those times of the uh the thin spaces the space where the spirit realm comes through and again traditionally like when we think of it we think of the dark spirits we think of the uh the spooky stuff but really um it wasn't so cut and dry with with the beginning of the tra tradition it y you would wear masks to uh sort of masquerade as uh one of the one of the spirits to step into the role in in a sort of way so so you have some through lines with the oath uh that happens like like the new year's oath where you do the uh, pig sacrifice which is like this this idea of letting the gods influence you by um by paying attention to them and you get that through line again with the shaman where you're kind of becoming the channel as well in order to allow the blessing to be bestowed and also to sort of put a temper on on it all and and maybe prevent the other side of that the, the downside maybe maybe kind of stop that um that flow from happening in a non-productive way in a way that uh would hinder your life and so so it's it's about rather than resisting the spirits or casting the spirits out like would happen in um say like a puritan tradition uh you know like the witches you know like we need to get rid of this evil spirit it's more like okay well the spirit's going to be there anyway how do we channel it how do we let it be in and when we circle back to that saturnalia tradition which is more of like this huge festival um <clears throat> full of drinking and wine and, and these upside down things where the rich become poor and the young uh, act like the old elders and, and all this stuff just for a day. It's like these energies are already there and they're going to be there. And if we try to cast them out, we, we can't because they're always going to be there. They're always going to be um, one or the other. And so it's more about bringing it in, into harmony. And it's more about stepping into the connection to those spirits, like, like acknowledging, hey, these are here. Um, so let's deal with them. And so in that sense, I see a lot of the through lines with what I was talking about in the first episode, which is the hauntings, these, um, these ideas of like these people that we remember, uh, our ancestors in a lot of ways, right. Um, who are no longer here. So we, who we can't see, but, but still kind of have an effect on us, um, in a weird way, like beyond time. So, so those hauntings, another way you can look at them is almost like these fairy spirits, these um, these unseen spirits who are not bound by time as much, and they they enter into us like through our memories, right? Uh, we are haunted by them, but be, and they change us, 
But if we are trying to preserve and we're trying to preserve like their memory or trying to um, keep ourselves only ourselves, uh, there's a lot of different ways that we could stop that. Rather, rather than what, what we could do with that is go like, no, I'm being affected by this, the spirit of this person or, or by this memory of this person. And I can let that happen. And in fact, uh, if I try to make that happen a certain way, or I try to stop that, I'm limiting possibility. I'm narrowing what is okay and what's not. And I'm creating a sense of purity that needs to be maintained. Um, and when you do that, uh, that seems to be within these traditions, is like when you stop that flow and, and stop allowing that release to happen, the, um, the energy that wants to come forth to happen, it, um, it breaks things. It stops the processes. So if we look at this back to the creativity episode, uh, this would be like the ego at work, um, trying to make things happen a certain way rather than just allowing things to be whatever they're going to be, letting it be an infinite game where there is no end result because that's what these senses of purity do is they, they say there is a perfect way for this to end and we need to just get to that perfect way. But um, if instead we look at it as an unfolding or a channeling or a moving through, um, things begin to really open up and they open up in predict unpredictable ways, right? Because it could be good or it could be bad. But these festivals and these moments, um, especially from the, the season from Halloween to Christmas, it is a time where the darkness is descending upon you and you're getting to the darkest time of the year. And you're letting those things come to the surface. You're letting the uncomfortable things come. The, the things that you would normally avoid, uh, you're letting them be. You're, let, you're sitting with them. And what that does is that allows it to be integrated, allows it to be, um, using sort of the metaphor, it's like a fire that is burning the field to allow for new growth. Um, it is something that in one sense is dangerous, but in the other sense is very needed. And so with that, I want to focus for a second on contamination specifically. I've circled around it a bit and talked about the ways that we try to avoid contamination, but I don't think I've mentioned too much how impossible it is to actually avoid being contaminated by other things. Uh, there's a couple different realms here that I have that, that I just want to... Um, quickly go over give me just a second to pull it up so looking at things that we're thinking about as far as contamination goes within um, current issues uh, one of the main ones is the COVID-19 uh, virus and the um, the idea of a, a foreign microbe getting in the first thing is the overwhelming amount of connection we have to each other in regards to the breath, which is a really interesting, um, it's this thought experiment, I forget where it comes from exactly, but it's called Caesar's Last Breath. And the idea of Caesar's Last Breath is um, if you do the math and you go, how many uh, molecules of air are in one breath of air um, in any given set of lungs at any given time? And then how many particles of air are there in the entire atmosphere? And um, how long does it take for all of that to disperse? 
And when you add all the math up, it comes out to pretty much exactly one molecule. And what that means is um, if you, for instance, take the last breath of Caesar as he's getting stabbed, uh, those molecules that come out of his breath during that last moment get dispersed through the air. Um, through the air, it takes about, I think, somewhere around like 10 years for it to dissipate into the entire atmosphere. But then after that point, um, on average, there will be one molecule in any given breath of air that was also within the last breath of Caesar. And this is true for any breath at any point in history. Um, Jesus, while he's saying Sermon on the Mount, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., while he's doing the I Have a Dream speech, um, you know, your, uh, <laughs> your crush when uh, you had your first kiss 10 years ago, or what, whatever it is, those those molecules are continuing in the air and they're coming back uh, into your lungs. And when you look at it that way, there's this tremendous history uh, with molecules. And the same thing happens with water. Uh, water goes through uh, cycles. And, and so um, the numbers are somewhat similar. Uh, as far as I can tell, I, I can't find as much exact numbers on it, but it's a pretty good bet that, um, and, and, and this is the stuff where like contamination, this is going to sound sacrilegious, but like the water flowing from Jesus's side, it, uh, that same water is, is now dog piss kind of stuff. Um, we usually don't think about things in these terms. We think about things in an isolated context, but the fact of the matter is that matter is reused all the time. And all this stuff that we're made up of, some of it maybe wasn't um, used before, especially some of the rare elements and things like that. <clears throat> but a vast, vast majority it is. Uh, if we're looking at carbon, there are carbon cycles as well. Uh, CO2 gets into the air, it gets absorbed by plants, we eat plants, um, uh, we, a, a lot of our makeup is actually air, um, and that stuff's been everywhere. You know, the, the molecules in our body, we, we like to think of, like, uh, ancient creatures as sort of this story or this thing that's gone. <clears throat> but all of that energy, all of that matter is still around and it's still being used and it's still being transformed. It's still being made into new forms. And so we are contaminated with all that stuff. That gets to be really inspiring and hopeful in one sense. Uh, when you think of the great and wonderful characters uh, within this cast of, of the world. But that's also true for other things, you know, like in your breath right now, you were breathing in the air, some of the air that, uh, Hitler breathed in, uh, while he was giving orders to execute Jews. You are, um, breathing in 
the same air that was going through the lungs of people dying of the Black Death. These, this, this whole big cast of history, you, you can't escape those molecules. They are a part of you. They're within you. Um, so you're contaminated with them. And you can go like, okay, well, but that's just like a physical deterministic, like, what about uh, lineage and history? Um, it's kind of a hilarious notion, actually, speaking of Nazis, this idea of a pure race, uh, that's just not something that can happen. Uh, first off, uh, from what vantage point are we using? Because uh, you go far enough back and there's sort of this nexus point. Um, you know, just, just think of the thought experiment. Uh, you have uh, two parents, but you have four grandparents, and then you have eight great-grandparents, and then you have 16 great-great-grandparents, and so on and so on and so on. It gets exponential until when you get back, oh, I don't know, 500 years or so, I, I think it, it's only about that long, you have more uh, theoretical ancestors than there were people on the entire planet. And, you know, obviously... There's um, not a perfect thing there because, like, my great-great-great-great-grandfather might be the same as my great-great-great-great, as the great-great-great-great-grandfather of somebody I marry. And it's a far enough distance that that, that doesn't, you know, that's not problematic, right? Uh, you're just, you know, we're all distantly related is, is kind of the idea. Uh so you can't free yourself from that sort of contamination either. This idea of uh, either sticking with a pure race or, or this idea of getting divergent enough that there's not some sort of overlap. Uh, both of those notions are impossible uh, when it comes to the genetics. And then you start thinking, okay, well, what about um, just the notion of uh, being human? Uh, well, we're finding more evidence with that. There's all sorts of contamination within the genetic code um, on multiple levels. On one level, finding out that, well, we actually didn't uh, just cast out the Neanderthals and overtake them. Uh, apparently, there was interbreeding there. And not only that, it's more complicated. There were these uh, uh, other races and um, other beings that were... Um, similar that that were human in in one sense but not homo sapiens you know a, a different sort of like uh uh you know m more than apes but not not who we are and as we're learning more as we are discovering more uh opening up these genetic codes we're finding uh these snippets of dna that are from these other beings. And it just is kind of a side note, that's kind of a fun thing to explore. Uh, a lot of these other beings have uh, characteristics that seem very much like other mythological beings. Like uh, we talked about the elves, um, like elves and dwarves. The uh, Denisovians, I think I'm saying that right. We'll, we'll have to look that up later. But they're uh, smaller in stature, like they only ever got to maybe four feet tall. And um, then you have some other ones, uh, I'm, I'm spacing the name right now, but they, they seem more like giants. And uh, 
it's this weird colored history and you see it some in mythologies and things like that uh you know these ideas of giants and dwarfs and uh uh different human-like creatures that aren't human um and apparently uh yeah we are partially them as well and and there's different subpopulations across the earth that have more of any one given bit of dna of all these things um but uh the idea of human is is very blurred even and it gets even more complicated when you get down to the cellular level uh mitochondria what we've discovered was actually originally all so all eukaryotic cells get energy from mitochondria which um at some point somebody went hey that looks a lot like bacteria and we looked into it further and it turns out that's exactly what it is at some point in history the uh, there were cells that were eating the bacteria but eating it whole and allowing it to still do its work and and creating this very deep symbiotic relationship but um at some point or another something transferred over to where the dna of that bacteria gets embedded in the dna of the cell that ate it and that is all eukaryotic life and it goes uh, you know that didn't even happen once apparently that happened another time and the chloroplasts within all plant life are the same sort of deal and we're, we're finding that these lines as we keep exploring more and more get more and more blurred because uh, i don't know if you guys are familiar with this thing called crispr but crispr is um I forget what it stands for, but it's essentially a shortcut, a way to snip genes, like like cut and paste, essentially. And the reason we figured out how to do it is because we observed certain bacteria doing it. And what the bacteria do is they uh, they will go in um, and they'll invade a host. Or maybe invade's not even the right word. We, we should probably get away from that word because uh, that implies uh, conquering or an infection. And it's not quite that way. So, so what they do is they, um, they will interact, uh, they will get inside a, a body, and they will get into the DNA there, and they'll just kind of like take little pieces of it and, and sort of try it out and, and see what happens. Um, so they'll modify their own genetic code. And we find out that they've been doing this for ages. And the weird thing is, once we recognized this pattern, we looked at it for the rest of life, and we find that the, this thing, which is called horizontal gene transfer, has been happening all throughout history. There's these little snippets of DNA that don't fit within the evolutionary timeline because it's not through the descendants. It's, um, it's through these little individual moments, which probably had a lot to do with bacteria, but these little individual moments where a gene uh, goes into another organism without, uh, without sex, without any sort of sexual reproduction. Um, and so you have these highly diverse domains of life where things shouldn't be mixing, and they mix. And uh, one of the really cool things uh, that happens besides that is uh, these interactions, these symbioses, between um between different organisms where the lines get blurred uh because one can't uh survive without the other and we we know of these a lot and we're taught these on like a smaller scale you know like the fish that that uh uh 
hang on the side of the whale and they get like a free ride, you know, and they're also protected, but they also clean the whale kind of stuff. Uh, but these things go a lot deeper. One of the big ones is lichen, uh, which are a symbiosis between bacteria and the fungi. And the fungi uh, do the nitrogen fixing, I think, and the um, bacteria get the energy production from the sunlight. So there's kind of a parallel there in some ways. It's a, it's a lot more complicated than that. But some ways there's a parallel there between the eukaryotic cell, cells with the engulfing, except they both have their own genetic lines and they can sort of survive on their own. But when they survive on their own, they look very different. And, and the lichen structure uh, dissolves. It doesn't seem to be dependent on either side, but only emerges when both sides together get involved. Um, and yeah, it seems like an extreme example to, to look at lichen this way, but it turns out that we're all this way. Um, we're finding out more information that like, even down to like our immune systems don't develop properly if there's not bacteria, uh, for it to interact with. And at first we think of that in, in like this germ warfare kind of sense of like, oh yeah, because it's got to get its defenses up and it's got to figure this out. But it turns out that it's a lot more complicated than that because there's a lot of things that the immune system lets pass by and doesn't even consider a threat. And those things that it passes by, it enters into a symbiosis with, into a relationship with. And those uh, bacteria and fungi and, and, and all these little microorganisms, they actually contribute other pieces. So there's a lot of things like uh, uh, lactose intolerance, for instance, has been linked to a different gut microbiome. And when you have the proper um, bacteria there, it stimulates your system to produce the uh, um, I'm totally spacing the name of it, the stuff that breaks down the uh, lactic acid and or not lactic acid, I'm sorry, that's uh, that's muscles. Uh, what's the name of it? The ah, I'll have to think back of it. The, the principle is the same. The idea is that um, by the, having the presence of the bacteria, um, our own system is stimulated to create production of something that's needed. And it doesn't do that without the presence of the bacteria. And so we have these symbiotic relationships where we literally cannot survive without, or if we, if we survive, it looks very different without these organisms in our body. And there's sort of this new emerging theory of um, the immune system, less as being sort of this guard dog that stops things from coming in, and more as sort of a, uh, almost like an interviewer <laughs> of like, uh, sort of looking at these different um, organisms and going like, is the, are you something that can be incorporated? Or are you something that we need to uh, keep, like, uh, keep out because you're not going to provide balance? And, and that's kind of the, the question. So it's a weird turnover from this question that we've been having before of like, there, in one sense, there is almost a Puritan value there. There's some truth to it, which is that there's either incorporation or uh, a casting out. But it revolves around a different question. The incorporation doesn't involve assimilation. It involves uh, cooperation. And so the question isn't, um, can you become like me? We're not asking these bacteria to like uh, become a human cell. 
what we're doing instead is we're going, uh, our immune system is going, hey, I've got this whole system going on. There's like a whole city of different things going on in this body. Um, will you be a part of it? Uh, will you make this body more than what it is by itself? Uh, if so, welcome in. If not, um, then you go do your own thing. Uh, then you, uh, you, there's sort of a, a sense of self-exile here, <laughs> which is kind of an interesting thing. And and on that note, with, with these sort of foreign bodies within the body, that gets really complicated too, because when you look at it, there are more, as much as, uh, so as much as 90% of our body, when you look at the sheer number of cells, is not human cells. Um, because all these bacteria and these fungi and these viruses and all this stuff, they're so much smaller than our eukaryotic cells that there is that much more of them. So depending on how you define what m makes a body human, you might say that we're more microorganism than we are uh, whatever you want to call it, eukaryotic cell, human cell. Uh, so really when you look at all these things, no matter which range you look at, like, like keeping the body pure is not really something that you can do. I mean, even if you think of babies, like you go like, Oh, a newborn baby. Yeah. And then they got to have, uh, they got to be supplied with the bacteria. Um, well, first off that happens literally at birth. Um, the vaginal canal provides a, a ton of bacteria that, uh, starts them off. But also, even internally, already the bacteria is there in uh, in utero. It is in the like like the uterus is not uh, free from contamination either. It's not this pure somehow perfect thing. Uh, yeah, it's protecting uh, the fetus, but it isn't um, it isn't keeping everything out. It, it's also a uh, it's a system even even before birth, just like. Uh, the mother's body is a system. And so again, when, when you start looking at all these things, all these ideas of where we try to prevent contamination, you start to realize it's impossible, whether it's on a social level, whether it's a, a biological level, um, that there is no way to even prevent that if you want to. And on that note, uh, one of the biggest things that we think of when we think of contamination is uh fungus so like molds and uh, uh mushrooms and, and and weird things growing where they shouldn't right uh mushrooms are things that contaminate other things to a huge huge extent uh, if you think of a mushroom you usually think of like the sprouting body but the truth of the matter is a mushroom is uh, mostly underground and mostly growing through these little strands and networks into the soil. And in fact, uh, to such an extent that some estimates put uh, even just a cube of uh, soil, just a square cube of like a centimeter, having as much as a couple miles worth of filaments uh called hyphae, which are the the main building structures of fungi. And uh, these, these little filaments, they uh, move through the dirt and um, basically seek out, they seek out chemical 
uh, differences is what they do, but they do that by touch. And so literally everything that they interact with, they, th their mode of sensing the world is literally through contamination. There's no way for them to not get in deep with what they're touching. And we like to think that that's not how we are. You know, we have a sense of smell, we have a sense of sight. And, um, but at the end of the day, these are just chemical things as well. Every single thing we see in the world, we have to uh, essentially come in contact with, whether it's light entering our eyes or uh, particles coming up from an object and entering into our nose to reach the receptors. Uh, taste, obviously touch is still going to do the same thing too. Uh, hearing is vibrations, which involve molecules and the molecules hit us. Um, we're not so different from the mushrooms, uh, which are just in everything. They touch everything in order to uh, interact. And uh, so, so mushrooms are really weird that way, but they're also really weird in the sense that they love to enter into symbiosis with everything. So um, any plant that you find in the wild, there will be... Um, and I think this is true for like 95% of the plants that you pick up in the wild. Uh, it's, it's almost kind of more like something's wrong with the plant if you don't find it. Is these tiny um, fungi actually growing in between the cell walls and providing a sort of uh, safety net for the plant. Um, and, and creating the symbiosis on a cellular level. Uh, they they like doing stuff like that. They like entering into relationships like lichen and, and changing things. And when you look at it more too, uh, they are interested in balance when it comes to contamination. And, and that's kind of the weird thing and the fuzzy thing, which is they are some of the best creators of antibiotics. In fact, the antibiotics that we have stem from uh, synthesizing these mushroom compounds that are selective with when they let something in or out. And again, it's the same sort of thing, the, these compounds, it's a chemical way of doing it rather than a uh, cellular way. But th these compounds sort of work like the mushroom's immune system, the same way that ours does. Is It's selective, but it's in a way that like, can I um, interact with you? Can, can we do an exchange? Can we do a symbiosis? Or are you just going to try to take me over? If you're just going to try to take me over, I am going to stop that. I'm going to block that. Um, if you're not wanting to play, then we're not going to play. And so it's, it's really interesting. We take these, these compounds that are originally meant for, um, selective, uh, gatekeeping with a, a ton of intention and we go, hey, when there's any contamination, we're just going to take a ton of that compound and just flush the system of everything. And the ways that we do that are um, very much slash and burn. In some ways, really interestingly, it's like setting those fields on fire except you don't know what's going to come next. And so ironically, a lot of times when we try to grab for certainty like that, we, um, we do the opposite. We 
create a new cycle that is not part of the normal cycle, which creates uh, opportunity. There's a lot of times where um, opportunistic infections will happen immediately after a uh, antibiotic treatment. You, you have to be really careful to recolonize gut bacteria and things like that um, in order for it to be uh, safe because you can you can get into a lot of trouble where uh, you have a lot of uh, digestional issues or, or even energy issues or um, there's a, a gut-brain connection as well that we're discovering um, that these microorganisms affect your thoughts. And so uh, when you eliminate all of them, you've, you've eliminated all those other relationships that you have uh, by, by having such a strong pointed substance. And uh, yeah, it does weird things because it's no longer in balance, even though it was something that was good in nature, that was um, serving a, a proper purpose. Uh, we get a little too gung-ho with it because we think about, we, 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 or we try to use it in a way that is um, in control rather than uh, in relationship. And so uh, I think there's a few other tail ends that I just want to get to real quick here with mushrooms. Um, they do fit their container with like water. So they, they flow. Um, those mycelial networks underground, uh, they... Um, they will move based off of stimuli. So you can have this population that of fungus that shifts through the land. And the interesting thing is it doesn't, it, it fits the shape of its container. So there is no set body type for mushrooms. Uh, with the fruiting bodies, those are the things that come up uh, to the surface. That, those can have a specific uh, shape and identifier. But uh, even those get pretty blurry. They have a bunch of different ways that they can uh, uh, manifest depending on conditions. And um, they uh, mutate really easily. Mushrooms are, the, just the way that their genetics work, they're very prone to mutation. So new forms are constantly arising. And um, they're both dependent on weather and they actually cause weather, which is crazy. So um, mushrooms grow vastly different compared um, based off of environment uh, what sort of temperatures are there what sort of moisture all that sort of stuff but because they put out so many spores uh, when they have the fruiting bodies and the spores are so tiny uh, they end up traveling vast distances and kind of infecting other areas uh, if you want to look at it that way but also because they're in the air uh, the spores are one of the main components that uh, forms, uh, acts as a seed or a starting point for uh, snowfall and, and water droplets. Uh, so literally affecting weather and changing the world around them, which is also true of uh, what the bacteria did before, uh, before there was really anything else. The, the reason we have an oxygen environment is because of small microorganisms like this that were... Um, expelling, which was at the time a uh, a byproduct and a toxic substance um, into the atmosphere. And eventually that changes the entire atmosphere of the world. And so the oxygen-rich environment that we know now is something that wouldn't have worked well for uh, ancient organisms, but organisms adapted. And one of those adaptations was uh, plant life that... Um, 
that can uh, have this better relationship with oxygen. Uh, one, put it, putting it out um, from the bacteria, but two, like um, animal forms breathing it in. Uh, you, you get this cool uh, back and forth rebalancing. And a lot of the reason that rebalance can occur is because um, of life getting onto land, uh, which is what I mean by the plant life taking a part in it, is in order to have oxygen breathing species to such an extent that um, the land is transformed, you need the plants and the plants feed off of Hold on, I'm trying to sort this out in my brain. The plants feed off of the air, but also the complicated compounds that allow for complex life are um, absorbed up through the roots, the micronutrients. That's what I'm getting at. There we go. Uh, and by our best accounts, we can we we kind of know at this point that. Um, Long before there were root systems that could absorb those nutrients, there were um, mushrooms, there were mycelium growing underground, and the plants basically learned how to create root systems through the mycelium. The mycelium was uh, acting as a framework for those root systems. So uh, mushrooms have this deep history in forming new forms of life and creating uh, symbiosis between multiple forms and uh, having a close relationship chemically to animal life, to human beings, because uh, fungus is weird. It's less related to plants than it is to animals. And um, in fact, there's a lot of evidence that these mycelial networks almost work like uh, brains. They have electrical signals that um, travel through in complex ways and uh, the uh, chemical signatures are so similar that we can sort of do um, uh, study on them in, in a lot of ways that we do study on brains and uh, even beyond that there's so many compounds found in mushrooms that react well with human beings because of the similarities in chemical composition between the two. And that's probably why uh, these compounds of uh, like uh, these psychedelic compounds uh, work so well in the human brain. There's something that is found within these mushrooms that uh, by some form or another, because these are costly uh, compounds to uh, create, uh, in some form or another benefit the mushroom and probably benefit the mushroom in a somewhat similar way as uh, the effects when we imbibe that substance ourselves. So the, the weird thing to think about is um, a substance like psilocybin might actually be a little bit more of a facilitator for um, mushroom thought, for lack of a better word. Uh, and this is where we're getting to the edges of science where we don't quite know exactly what's going on here or uh, how all this stuff works but at the end of the day uh, there seems to be a new symbiosis forming through these compounds and in relationship to human beings 
And I'm realizing that I'm drawing it out long again. So here we are at over an hour and a half. And so I will cut this off <laughs> and we'll do one last episode. I promise it'll, it'll be the last one for real. Uh, but this last episode, we will uh, just kind of capstone it and really get into the um, the ways that all these things are connected. I really want to take a moment in that last episode to uh, get personal with it, to um, step back from all of the exploration and the science and, and work with uh, some integration there, um, both relating it to my life specifically and relating it to each other, uh, kind of form a mycelial network out of all this stuff. But uh, I'll see you guys then. And I think we're good for now. So we'll see you soon.